Hello from the California Lawyers Association annual meeting 2018 in San Diego, California. I'm Lawrence Coletti. I'm Congressman Brian Baird. And we're on the road with Legal Talk Network. And we're back. Welcome back to the show, everybody. We, of course, are continuing our coverage of the California Lawyers Association Annual Meeting 2018. This is the first, the inaugural annual meeting uh, as there's been some reorganization. And it is my uh, esteemed privilege to welcome Congressman Baird. Welcome to the show. I'm glad to be here. Thanks so much. So we did a little pregame, and so this is going to be a really interesting. I have a roadmap in front of me to guide us through the very complex topic we're going to discuss. So, uh, Congressman Baird, I understand that uh, you did this at the as the 2018 Morrison Address. You gave that, and so how to go? I really enjoyed the opportunity. You know, uh, Morrison, of course, is one of the most distinguished figures in California law for many years, and this event uh, to be. Here is so uh, such an honor. There are so many people with great reputations and profound wisdom have delivered the speech before. So somehow I got invited too. But to, to be here for the first inaugural event of the California Lawyers Association was a real honor. And the topic seemed timely. It was, can uh, constitutional democratic republics exist without facts and reason? Gotcha. All right. So we're going to unpack that a little bit. I got a roadmap here. So just going to walk the audience through a little bit so they know what to expect because we're going to we're going to dive deep. We're going to uh, go left. We're going to go right. It's going to be uh, it's going to be really interesting. So we're going to start with Arthur Miller. Yeah. We're going to transition to Infowars. We're going to go to epistemology, then cults. Then we're going to talk about authoritative regimes. Then we'll transition into arbiters of facts and reason. We'll circle around for a quote from George Washington, our first president, which is appropriate at the uh, inaugural annual. And then we'll uh, transition up to a call to action, a CTA for attorneys. That's perfect. Wow. All right. So to begin this journey, let's start with Arthur Miller. Yeah. So right after the Gore v. Bush decision, Arthur Miller gave the lecture for the Jefferson Award for Humanities. He gave it at the Kennedy Center. Right in front of me sat Sandra Day O'Connor and several of the justices who made the decision in Gore v. Bush. I thought it was a flawed decision, but Miller made an amazing point. He spoke first about the power that drama has in our lives and our culture in moving people and inspiring people. And then he said, but there's a paradox today, and that is that hundreds of millions of people may spend more time watching the actors on TV than they spend actually in real life human interactions. And as a result of that, more and more people may be less and less able to distinguish drama and action from reality. And that when we're faced with that, it can create sort of a death spiral where people don't know what's real anymore. Wow. Okay. So I think we're seeing a little bit of that in social media. I mean, people can have basically consequence-free interactions online, text-based. Indeed. It's totally different when you see somebody in person. Indeed. Exactly. And, And Miller's point was that... What happens then, and he pointed this out, is that then the fake becomes real and the real seems fake. So in that context, uh, which was 15 years ago, he was pointing out that after Gore v. Bush, Gore had to act like he really lost when, in fact, he got more votes. Bush had to act like he really won when he got fewer votes. And as Arthur Miller put it, and the Supreme Court still had to pretend it was the Supreme Court. Pretty prescient at the time, but now 15 years later, we see that terrible undermining of facts, reason, and reality itself. And Miller's prescience is actually somewhat terrifying. All right, let's transition to InfoWars. Right. So uh, shortly, actually, as I was preparing this speech, I was passed on the road 
by a fellow with a bumper sticker that said Infowars. Or no, sorry, it said 9-11 was an inside job, Infowars. Well, as it happened on September 11th, I was in the seventh floor of the Longworth House office building. We looked out over the Pentagon and National Airport. We saw the Twin Towers get hit. I called my staff together and said, look, if they've hit the Twin Towers, they're likely to hit the Capitol. I would if I were them. So look out the window and watch out. Maybe two minutes later, one of my staff who was sitting at the window screamed, oh my God, something just exploded. And we ran to the window and saw the fireball coming out of the Pentagon. When I practiced as a psychologist, if somebody said things like 9-11 was a hoax or the, the shooting of the children was an inside job and didn't really happen, people would have said, that's delusional. You've lost touch with reality. But in this era, it seems that paranoia has not only been normalized, it's been weaponized and it's been commercialized with major corporations providing vehicles for this nonsense to be spouted and people paying advertising money to sustain it. So we've got a real problem in a society when facts and reason and reality are so undermined. So what is the, I mean, we talked a little bit about uh, the disconnect and people watching TV and uh, basically having more interactions with actors. Is, is it that simple? Is that why it seems like we're becoming unmoored from, I guess, accountability for truth? It's not that simple. First of all, you've got to look at the context we're in. We're, people are still recovering. The, the middle class and lower economic classes have still not recovered from the financial collapse, uh, the Great Recession. The country still psychologically is reeling from September 11th, and we've had two wars that are still ongoing because of that. And there are issues, resurgent issues around uh, racism, and there's the perennial emerging problem of how do we feel about immigrants, which has plagued us for many years in our, in our society. All that uncertainty, all that change creates for a certain subset of people a sense of getting unmoored, and when they are in that situation, they're more vulnerable to the appeal of the demagogic appeals of authoritarian personalities. Add to that hundreds of billions of dollars of campaign spending and purposeful driven divisiveness, driven in some cases by our own uh, political parties, but in others and actually by the Russians strategically. One might have thought once that was paranoid, but that's actually real. So you've got this combination of a public that's troubled, a political situation that's unstable and sort of moving towards extremes, and a president who's come basically unmoored from reality and truth and reason. So let's talk about decision-making and epistemology. Oh, right. So, you know, I, I, I was a clinical neuropsychologist before I was in Congress, and that's where I came to work with, with brain-injured patients and with paranoid patients, but also came to study how normal people make decisions. There was a psychologist named Dan Kahneman who, with his colleague Amos Tversky, uh, studied the normal errors human beings make in judgment, just average folks. And it turns out that most of us are prone to a whole system of errors that we make, and yet we think we're right. So we tend to believe that we're right even when we're wrong. We tend to misperceive and misinterpret information. Kahneman Tversky showed that it's not a logical, fact-based process. Economics isn't. Psychology of decision-making is not. So all of us normally make decisions in a different way. Then there are different approaches to decision. That's sort of epistemology, the philosophical study of how knowing happens. One thing I talked about today is as a scientist myself, my epistemology is different than that of attorneys who may be in an adversarial role. Now, from a political perspective, nobody ever talks about epistemology. In fact, you could imagine the following ad. Congressman Brian Baird is epistemologically incapable of serving in Congress. Well, where I come from, people say, that sounds pretty bad. 
they wouldn't know how bad it was until the next ad says, he claims he knows that he doesn't know. But if he doesn't know, why should we elect him to Congress to begin with? And the point is, how we know matters. And thinking about that matters. And one of the questions is, if people misinterpret facts, and if we have different epistemologies, who's the arbiter of facts and reason? Who's there to help us understand what's real from what's unreal? Well, right now, there are a whole lot of money and a whole lot of voices trying to tell us that the unreal is real and the real is unreal. We've got to find a way to sort that out. And traditionally, the legal profession had had a major role in that. Traditionally, the press had a strong role in that. And traditionally, the Congress did. All of them are under some level of suspicion. When I was growing up, I uh, had a Catholic school education and the Jesuit priest, uh, one of the big things, and this is a terrific uh, lesson, they taught me how to critically think. Mm -hmm. And so it kind of rewired your brain a little bit while I was in high school and, you know, asked those questions like, why do you know that? And that uh -huh. was one of the questions like, what, what is your foundation for that? And that truly served me pretty well because I think it gives you a roadmap, you know, towards working your way through the fray. And I think today it's hard. I mean, when I was growing up, you know, the internet wasn't as prevalent. So we did a lot of our research in libraries and books. And there was, you know, through publishing, there was a little bit more, I guess you had to bring a little bit more to the table to bring yeah. a production. But on the internet, you can just go to WordPress and start a blog and claim you're an expert for X, Y, and Z. And is anybody going to fact check that? That's so right. one of the things that I wanted to ask you, um, Congressman Baird, um, you know, just how do we know this question? How do we know? Do you think the American culture is losing or decreasing its ability to critically think? I do. Uh, I actually do. And one of the things we learn about how people make decisions, and people will say sometimes that, you know, if people were just better educated and if they just had the facts, we'd solve all the problems. The facts are that statement itself is naive. In fact, my own research and other research has shown that oftentimes people who are really do not know the facts, nevertheless have very strong opinions about what the facts are. Secondly, even people who know the facts may disagree dramatically on what the policy solution should be, or whether the facts are right even. So it's not about just education, and it's not about just, in quotes, having the facts. Part of what we learn is that people, for good reason, they're busy, right? They've taken care of the family, they're going to work, they're fixing the car, they're doing whatever else. They don't have time to delve into the facts of policy. And frankly, that's why we have a democratic republic. That's our job as policymakers is to process those facts. But then the question comes, well, how do people choose who's gonna process the facts for them? And in an era where you can choose your own news, as it were, and choose a flattering mirror that then also distorts the external world, and you can vote for people who tell you what you wanna hear instead of what reality is, now you've got a problem. And so one of the questions is, how do we get past that? How do we get people, help people get to where we do have objective facts, where truth matters? Now, add to this, and I raised this in the speech today. I, talk, I talked earlier a little bit about, I talked a little bit about brain injured patients. I worked with brain injured patients, and the fundamental problem for a brain injured patient is that the organ that helps you solve problems is the very organ that is damaged. And there's a kind of a brain injury that to the right parietal lobe that causes what's called left neglect. And that means people just can't be aware of anything on the left side. So they'll dress half their body, they'll shave half their face. If you draw a picture of a clock, they'll go one, two, three, four, five, six, that looks good to me. The rest of the clock is gone. Even if you reach around in front of them, put your arm on the table in front of them and say, Who, what is that? And they'll say, oh, that's my arm. It's your arm, but they'll say it's theirs. 
the brain itself is unaware of what's going on. Now, I don't mean to say that Congress is brain injured, but insofar as Congress is supposed to solve some of these problems, and it's clearly dysfunctional, and it doesn't seem to know it's dysfunctional, and it surely doesn't seem to be able to solve those problems, there's a parallel there. Now, the next step up is worse, and that's cults, and that's paranoia, and that's ultimately authoritarian regimes. Well, that's the next stop on our roadmap here, so let's get to it. Well, the thing is on cults, in a cult, whereas a paranoid individual, we'll start there, believes things that aren't true are true. And often it has some conspiratorial element to it. When I practiced, oftentimes you heard paranoid patients say things like, the FBI is putting thoughts in my head, or the FBI is following me, or the FBI is recording my conversations or whatever. Or there were illegal aliens, or not illegal, and today that's not what people talked about. They talked about space aliens. Uh, but they would say space aliens have occupied the body of my family or something. Now, that sounds crazy to us. But when you say to someone, has it occurred to you that's not real? Understand that for a delusional person, those delusions make sense of the world. It all fits together in their delusion. Paranoia reinforces itself. And so our best efforts to try to help people not be paranoid can actually sort of turn on themselves. So uh, one of the things I've noticed, and I've talked about this on the air a few times, but uh, one of the things I've noticed since law school was that, uh, you know, family members and friends will get into political arguments and their ability to agree to disagree mm-hmm. is uh, dissipating. And so I see my family, sadly, you know, get into fights that turn into long grudges because they disagree on political points and, you know, assembly of reason and, and I support this candidate versus that one and right. here's the reasons why. And it's not enough for them just to... A, acknowledges a different opinion out there and just let it go. Yeah, that's true. There is that. But there's also this element that there was a time when facts and reason helped us resolve that, meaning we would have discussions. And it wasn't just we'll agree to disagree because some things are facts. We shouldn't disagree about that. What we're losing is the ability to turn to facts and turn to reason to actually make decisions. I had a, a person come up and tell me recently, boy, I don't like the fact that you, the fact that he said, you members of Congress don't pay into Social Security and Medicare. You retire immediately on full salary. You get government paid health care for the rest of your life. And I said, well, sir, none of that is accurate. In fact, we do pay into Social Security. We do not retire on full salary immediately. We get a small, small portion of what our salary is. And we do pay into health care and it's not free for life. And he said, well, we're just going to agree to disagree. No, you can't because it's not true. You can't just agree to disagree when something is false. So there's both, both the unwillingness. What's different is it's not agree to disagree. It's the unwillingness or inability to say, help me understand the facts and reasoning that led to your decision. Then I'll listen to you. And then you listen to me as I do it. And then let's work it out together. That's what's really missing. Interesting. Interesting. I wish, uh, I wish that was, uh, taking place a little bit more often these days. I think, uh, I'd read something that tribalism is beginning to really infuse itself into our political discourse. And people are just automatically lining up with the the political party that they, I guess, they identify the most with, even though, like you said, there's some issues that really are kind of fact-driven and that everybody ought to be on the same page. Right. We tend to, increasingly in politics, we're trying to first tell me what colored jersey you have, and then I'll tell you whether I'll listen to you. Not tell me what facts you have and what your reasoning is, and then we'll reason together. That is... And and this goes back to the points earlier. It's shorthand and convenient for people. I don't know the facts myself, but I'll trust somebody who does. And so what happens is 
average person doesn't know, they may sense it, that the climate is changing and why, but they don't know the science behind it. And they think it's too complex. It's really not that complex, but because they think it's complex, and frankly, because the polluting industries have spent hundreds of millions of dollars trying to tell them it's false, and last but not least, because it would require behavioral change on all our parts to deal with, what do you do? Trust the guy who says it's not real. That absolves you of responsibility, it lets you feel special, and it lets those pointy-headed academics look wrong in spite of the fact that hurricanes are hammering us, in spite of the fact that the oceans are overheating, in spite of the fact that ocean acidification is killing our shellfish, on and on. So people are denying those facts. And you know, the problem is, at some level, that's kind of what happens in cults, and it's what happens in authoritarian regimes. Hannah Arendt said that authoritarianism doesn't just reside whether someone's a fascist or a communist, it has to do with what they do with facts. And if they deny facts and if they deny reason, the field is ripe for authoritarianism. No, I saw that uh, uh, just sort of revealed in this documentary I saw about North Korea. Uh -huh. And uh, there was, and I cannot remember what it's called. It was on Netflix. It was absolutely tremendous. But uh, there was uh, a group of physicians that came over from the United States, and they fixed some blindness for people. Yeah. They came in, simple procedures, just stuff that was not available in North Korea. And uh, when these people took their bandages off, you know, they were standing in front. I think it, at the time it was Kim Jong-il. And uh, they, like, basically kind of bowed to him and thanked him for doing that, even it's though interesting. it was a totally different country's medical system that brought technology over and wow. know how to fix their eyesight. So getting back into authoritarian regimes when you, you know, don't, don't use facts and uh, you have a population that's willing to believe because of lack of information, you know, you get that kind of result. Precisely. And, you know, the political scientist, uh, Matthew McWilliams, who did a, a fascinating study in the last primary, he surveyed 1,800 voters, gave them the usual political questions. But he added in four questions that social scientists use to assess authoritarianism. And then he did statistics and saw which questions from the whole batch of questions would predict who would support whom. Two pieces of data came out as predictive of support for Trump. One was authoritarian tendencies, and the second one was fear of terrorism. Those variables did not predict uh, statistically any of the other Republican candidates, nor did they predict among the Democratic candidates. McWilliams points out that about 20% of our society, and in fact, unfortunately, of many societies, is hardcore authoritarian in their beliefs. They want a strong leader. They want to obey the leader. They want the leader to be right. They don't want dissent, etc. McWilliams points out that 20% hardcore, and then there's about 25% more who are sort of a step away from it. Under the right circumstances, the right leader, subtle manipulation, they can get there too. His question was, his assertion was, that's who Trump was appealing to when he said in January of 2016 that he could shoot someone to death on Fifth Avenue and still not lose votes. Now think about that. Candidate for the president of the United States says I could commit a capital offense in public, in broad daylight, and it wouldn't lose him votes. And he went ahead and got elected. Now, some people may take umbrage at this, but you say, how else do you explain that? How else do you explain that extraordinary, extraordinary deviation from normality? Well, Congressman Baird, uh, so far our journey has taken us to a very dark place. So I'm hoping that the next step gets a little brighter. But I think that it does because I see a sign on our roadmap here. I see arbiters of facts and reason. Yeah, so the challenge, traditionally two arbiters had been in place. One was the press. People once read editorials. Now, they could pick between editorials, pick between papers. But there were thoughtful people who had some kind of underlying standard for truth. And not that it's all been perfect. You have to understand 
Washington, for example, gave a very profound and grave caution in his farewell address about the dangers of factionalism. And it's a profound speech. If people haven't read it, they really should. But he basically said factionalism leads to its own sort of despotism. And that despotism causes people to then appeal to a single authoritarian who then sort of perverts the, the liberty and the cause of the greater, the greater good, puts themselves first and the country last. He also cautioned that factionalism can open the doors for foreign interference in our own government and in our own elections. Pretty prescient, Washington was. And yet, just a couple years later, our Congress and our administration were not at war, but they were certainly at battle, and we burst into terrible factions. And some of the greatest minds in American history were right in the front and center of the factional fight. Jefferson, Madison, Hamilton, really mixing it up in ugly ways. And Burr shot Hamilton to death, for goodness sakes. So we've had factionalism before, but the press has been important, and then Congress has been important. Well, the press has come under deliberate, cynical, and, and strategic attack for some time, and to my way of thinking, that's an attack on a fundamental pillar of a democratic republic. Simultaneously, Congress, because of partisanship, because of money, and because of, to some degree, cowardice about wanting to get elected, even if you have to sacrifice the greater good for your election, those have lost legitimacy in the minds of the public. So our arbiters are wounded. So let's bring it full circle. So we're at the uh, California Lawyers Association. You made your uh, your presentation, a 2018 Morrison address. Yes. And so obviously there's attorneys in the room. So what's the call to action for attorneys out there? Well, the call to action is this. Of all the various professions, attorneys ought to be skilled at recognizing deviation from facts and errors in reason. And they're respected for that. And attorneys have a right and a responsibility in a democratic republic to stand up for the validity and importance, essential importance of fact and reason. As it happens, Morrison himself, for whom this lecture is named, lived, he died in 1921, which is a long time ago. But when you read his biography, the biography emphasizes how his, he had an unwavering commitment to truth, how he was willing to listen to others and give them credit for their ideas how even though he represented and interacted with some of the best and biggest businesses in the, in the state and in the country, he never let their power or their money deviate him from doing what was right. And indeed, his, one of his biographers wrote that that elevated the businesses themselves to a higher level. His steadfast adherence to integrity, to truth, to reason, to fairness, raised everybody else's standard up. And my assertion is that the California Lawyers Association and its members have an, an obligation and a tremendous opportunity as they restructure this wonderful organization in its new first year to really set a marker and say, we are going to be that entity and that profession that insists that fact and reason matters, that embodies it in our own personal and professional lives, that insists that our judges do it. If we're elected to public office, we embody that there. And we set that example and lift the populace, and the country up in the process. Well, Congressman Baird, we're running short on time, but before we close it, I have one last question. Sure. For you. So if our listeners they want to reach out, follow up on what they heard today, how can they find you? Well, they can find me at brianbairdphd at gmail.com. I'm happy to hear from folks and, uh, you know, I really encourage them to check out some of the resources. Washington's farewell address is phenomenal. It's easily obtained. Arthur Miller's uh, Jefferson Lecture for the Humanities, marvelous speech. Hannah Rent's work is well known. And then Kahneman, uh, Dan Kahneman's book, Thinking Fast and Slow. These are great resources. And uh, I think they'd really enjoy those. 
Well, we've reached the end of the road for today's episode. I want to thank our guest, Congressman Brian Baird, for joining us. Thank you. My pleasure. And I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And if you like what you heard today, please find us, then rate us in Apple Podcasts. We'll see you next time for another episode of On the Road with Legal Talk Network. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. Thank you.